that's in essence what we're trying to do with businesses now is to keep some of that money that you're spending on television or search words or display or social influencers. And actually, let's go fix what's broken with your business so that you don't have to do that. We're on a mission. We're going to find and uncover the smartest, most successful entrepreneurs on the planet, explore their highs, their lows, and how they ultimately mastered the game. I'm Martin Cook, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Smarter Destiny podcast. I'm grateful for you and your time. Now let's level up together. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another Smarter Destiny podcast, where this time we have my friend Chris Neeland on the show. Chris is the co-founder of Cult Collective, which is more than nine years old. It's a marketing service firm, which means not a lot, but I'm going to tell you what it actually means in real life. What Chris and his team teach is how to build a cult following a fan base of raving fans that absolutely love your brand purpose mission everything you put out and will buy from you and what they don't like necessarily although it does have a place of course is paid media and discounting more sales should come from your cult following than anything else and chris has assured me he's going to put his money where his mouth is and show us how to spend less on advertising but make more on the front end so what else cult collective has had a year-on-year um increase double digit increase in revenue but at the same time they've actually reduced their headcount and overheads which is pretty cool to get that kind of growth whilst actually reducing your costs chris is the author of fix how to break your addiction and he is the co-founder at The Gathering, which is a Forbes top-rated virtual summit for business owners. Business summit for business owners. It's a real thing, but, you know, in COVID times, we go digital with that. But it is an amazing gathering full of amazing people, is the point. He's also worked with brands like Harley-Davidson, Zappos, Home Depot, and all of those big ones. But he prefers to talk less about that and more about how he's helped the small businesses, the people who really have a drive for change and a disgust for paid media. So I think without further rambling, let's bring Chris to the stage. Chris, how's it going? Hello, hello, hello. I'm great, Martin. I love, uh, love the chance to sit down here and rant with you and your listeners for the next uh, 30 to 45 minutes. <laughs> right, everybody, lock your doors and windows because we can't <laughs> do it for you. But this this lecture is beginning in three, two. No, I'm kidding. This is going to be a fun, fun episode. But let's uh, to set the scene, Chris, whereabouts in the world are you right now? I am currently in uh, beautiful Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I love Calgary. I love Banff. I love Calgary. I love your, uh, well, actually, less so the Edmonton, but they had the shooting ranges. <laughs> uh, I love your poutine. I, did, I Man, you're homie. One of my, my closest friends lives in Calgary. How's the weather right now? Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. When, when Calgary's nice, it's about as nice as it gets. But the problem is, there's just not that many nice days. Okay, well, I'm going to definitely get you to send us some of your steak sauce, your famous steak sauce, uh, yes. uh, right after the show, and, uh, and some Flames memorabilia as well. That's bringing back a lot of memories. <laughs> anyway, let's get, let's get into the show, shall we? So, Chris, the way we like to kick things off on this show is we like to go back to a point in time which really serves as a, a stepping stone, a jumping off point, whatever you want to call it, for you, the entrepreneur, and your journey that, um, that follows it. So have you got a time in mind from your past that you can take us to and paint us a word picture and you know really set the story off right yeah absolutely i mean my um i was i was a bit gobsmacked by my entrepreneurial journey Uh, i didn't respect 
entrepreneurship as much as I should have. I didn't grow up around a lot of entrepreneurs. I never really thought much about being an entrepreneur. I went down a very classic sort of, you know, uh, university and then MBA, the big corporate America kind of path, thinking that my future was to someday be the CMO of a Fortune 100 company. And um, I just got more and more exposed to entrepreneurship to the point where I had kind of a midlife crisis. And um, it's actually what brought me to Calgary. I had a chance to leave my sort of uh, cushy job within a large uh, organization and to go out on my own. Um, I always thought I never really had the courage to like, you know, work out of my basement and eat ramen for a year and not make any money to build a business. So this was a bit of a cheat where I kind of inherited an existing business and was able to take over from the true entrepreneur that sort of built it, uh, you know, two dozen years prior. Um, but once inheriting it and starting to just realize the, uh, the risk and reward system of making uh, courageous and sometimes terrifying decisions, I feel like I've sort of blossomed. I've now started three companies uh, since that, since moving here to Calgary and um, have, uh, have realized, have gained the respect that I needed to have that entrepreneurship is a, is a skill and a discipline no different than accounting or, or advertising is. And uh, now I can't imagine it any other way and would never go back and get quote unquote, a real job working for a Fortune 100 company. Amazing, amazing. And so after that point, what what point sort of serves as a a roll up your sleeves moment, shall we say? Yeah. Like you didn't you didn't have to eat the ramen, like you said, the ramen in the in the in the basement. But uh, you've you've inherited uh, a business, so you're now in there, and at some point you had to you know get in the mud with everybody else, right? Yeah, that point was 18 months in. So I had moved up here, taken over a successful firm. And that's where I was really kind of learning the, 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 how to be the boss, how to be sort of the ultimate decision maker. And in our industry, there's a thing called a client concentration problem. And it really refers to having one client represent a disproportionate amount of revenue for your firm. And it, it, you know, 25 to 40% is the danger zone. And if the client's over half of your billings, you're in like, uh, really precarious territory because if that client goes away, there's a 70% fatality rate. 70% of agencies that lose their biggest account do not survive. And so we lost our biggest account 18 months in. And um, if it had happened 12 months in, I probably would have just taken my ball and gone home, gone back to the States, gone back to my old job, begged for my, <laughs> begged my boss for my job back. And but the fact that it was 18 months in, we were settled and my kids were in school and we had made friends and we had fallen in love with, with Calgary. And so we were like, all right, we got it. How are we going to dig ourselves out of this ditch? And that began, I think, the most courageous moment of my career of, of building. We didn't just build what we lost. We said there were a lot of things about what we were doing that we did not like. And so let's not recreate that just because it was profitable, but rather let's create something Let's create the job that we want to go to every day. Um, I always hate that question of what keeps you up at night. I think the better question is what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like what are you yeah. jumping into? And so uh, we had the chance to architect something from scratch and build it. And uh, that that's what is now known as Cult Collective. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of pride of ownership in it. It certainly wasn't just me. I did have a, a business partner, which I would advise every entrepreneur to do. I don't think doing it as a lone gunman makes a lot of sense. 
and uh, my business partner and I and our first dozen employees or so uh, really kind of took this thing by the horns and ran with it. And it's, it's exceeded our expectations. Amazing. And so what kind of frustrating fat, say that three times fast, did you choose to cut for um, when you had this, this chance to, to reinvent and do things a bit differently? So again, it's kind of specific to our industry, but there were certain things within our industry that we despise. So the first one that comes to mind is media commissions. Uh, you know, since the dawn of the newspaper or radio, a lot of media is sold and funded through advertising and agencies would get a percentage of those media sales, which I thought was always very disingenuous. It became an agency's selfish best interest to encourage clients to spend more on media because that's how they would make more money. So we eliminated that. We killed our media department. We said, we're never going to take a media commission dollar again. And that was scary because it was lucrative, but we thought it was almost unethical. Uh, second thing that comes to mind is our production team. You know, if you're, a, if you're an agency that has a dozen people that build websites, you better believe you're going into every client situation wondering, I wonder if we should build them a website because you got to keep your people busy. Or yeah. if you build TV commercials or if you do photography, whatever you've invested in, you now become a hammer looking for that nail. And again, we found that very disingenuous. It's clients may not need that specific thing. And it's not the client's problem that you've hired people who are poorly utilized. So we scaled everybody way, way back. We, we adopted a much more open talent, contingent workforce models so that we would never be biased towards what the solution is. And then the last thing that comes to mind is one of the worst things about being in the ad business is how business is won. The RFP process where uh, I, I consider it like a, an episode of The Bachelor where a client is given two dozen roses and they everybody puts on their prettiest dress and tries to audition <laughs> for The Bachelor of why should I get a rose? And that's just backwards. You know, The client has a problem that we're the prize to be won. They need our help to get out through their problem. So we stopped responding to RFPs. We stopped playing that game, and uh, which required us to have to find a completely different way of attracting clients and, and winning business. Um, but th those are three examples of trying to zig while our competitors zagged. And uh, I'm glad we did every one of them. Beautiful. And so we've spoken about those frustrating fats being cut, right? Now, can we fast forward and, and, and talk about a time where the, 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 the knot in your stomach that is paid media and spending money to, to get customers became too much to digest and you said, right, we need to start doing something about this? Yeah, well, it was, it was in the oh crap moment of, of losing our biggest account. We were a more traditional creative and digital agency at the time. And, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention so that when we knew we lost that piece of business and we had to start thinking about how are we going to fill that hole in, in our revenue, our gut reaction was like, let's just start, let's just find somebody else who does what we used to do for that client. And so let's just go find our clients, you know, copycat, which was a big retailer that was addicted to flyers and signage and gift cards and loyalty programs. And so let's just go get another one of those. Um, what, what I was so proud of the team and I for doing is saying, no, we were doing that work because it was lucrative. We, we've, we for years have been taking clients money knowing that they're asking us the wrong question. Um, that, that, that 
by being an ad agency where we weren't even being invited in to the C-suite to have an honest conversation about what's broken. We were receiving a brief for somebody who was in that meeting who says, well, here's what we think is broken. Here's how we think we're going to fix it. And we need you guys to tell a pretty story or a funny story or an emotional story to, to, to convince people that we're right. And they're like, eh, I'm not sure you've properly diagnosed the problem. I'm certainly not sure that the prescription you've prescribed is the correct one. And I don't think it's as important how pretty or funny or clever the ad is. I think what we need is to create a different level of, of, uh, of, of awareness or what we call engagement with your fans. And so our, what we now call our villains, which is the reckless overuse of mass media and markdowns, um, was really kind of birthed from the, in the DNA of our business. If I just don't want to keep taking clients' money pretending like the things that they're asking us to do are actually going to work. So I sometimes say we grew a conscience and I'm trying not to be holier than thou, but I do see a lot of improper or unethical behavior where people know that uh, just spending that money, you know, have you ever heard the story, Martin, of uh, the Domino's pizza turnaround? No, I didn't think so. About a decade ago, Domino's pizza was dying in a last ditch effort to save their business from the likes of Papa John's. They gave... They, they went and hired the best ad agency in the planet, which at the time was Tristan Porter. They gave him a whack of money, allegedly nearly $500 million and said, fix us. And to Crispin Porter's credit, they gave them at least half of that back and said, no, you go fix yourself. Your pizza sucks and you need to make a better product and you need to change a lot of fundamental things about who you are, what you offer, what you price. And we're simply going to document that story. And it, it went on to become the single largest single year turnaround of something like, my numbers are all wrong, but something like down 20% to up 30%. So that 50 point swing in a 12 month period wasn't attributed to the mass media or the discount strategy. It was attributed to smart marketers actually doing their job and fixing a broken business and not trying to mask it over with clever ads and, and, and you know carpet bombing the world with coupons. So, that, that's in essence what we're trying to do with businesses now is to keep some of that money that you're spending on television or search words or display or social influencers. And actually, let's go fix what's broken with your business so that you don't have to do that. I like that. Just letting that um, settle for a moment in my mind. We'll be getting right back into it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Let me ask you something. What percentage of your revenue comes from email? If it's less than 20%, then you may well be leaving money on the table. With my brand, newbrew.com, 20% of our revenue is driven by email. Why? Because I myself got out of the way and let the email experts handle it. You see, with previous brands, email was often an afterthought, right? I would rely on sales, email sales, 20% off today, 15% off today, and rarely spared the time to do it properly. You know, split testing subject lines, keeping the list hygiene high, nurturing our sending reputation, and figuring out the ways to engage our list and drive sales without doing sales or discounts or scarcity just by engaging them. So who are these experts? Well, in our case, they're a fantastic agency from Canada called And Bam, a fantastic name, by the way. And they've literally helped hundreds of brand owners, many of whom have been on this very show, generate consistently high revenue from email. 
Right now, Ambam are offering free account audits to Smarter Destiny listeners. They'll go through your email account in detail and make personalized recommendations to boost your email sales. If you then want to take the leap and work with them, then I highly recommend you do so, but you don't need to. Head to smarterdestiny.com BAM and book a call. I highly recommend it. Okay, let's jump back into the so, interview. We said in the introduction about how what you're really trying to teach is how to build a cult and attract raving fans. Correct. What does that mean? And how does a brand start down that path? Yeah. So it starts with a desire. I mean, I think the single most frustrating part of this professional journey is how many brands are comfortable with mediocrity and that they've settled. And so to find a brand that actually wants more than financial success, they want to have some form of significance. Uh, that could be cultural significance. It could be making the planet a better place. It could be making legacy for the, for the founder. Um, it's like, you really have to have this gut check moment of what are we really even doing here? Cause there's a lot of businesses that seem inappropriately content with, you know, 3%, 5% year over year sales growth and just, you know, stealing a little bit of share and eroding away at their competitors year after year. That, that, that's not the mindset of a cult brand leader. A cult brand leader is disruptive. They're literally trying to change either the world or their industry. And so you can just, you'll, you'll know within five minutes of just talking with the founder, what's your ambition here? What's the end game? What does good look like? And if they're talking about, you know, in creating some form of financial independence for themselves, if they're talking about, I want to create a nice, you know, culture for my 40, 50, 100 employees, then it's like, go with God, have a nice little business. But that's not a cult brand. I mean, a cult brand, there is a burning platform within the hearts and minds of the people that are creating them to make a fundamental difference uh, in, in whatever capacity that they want to do. Um, how you do it is recognizing that there's four ways to get people to interact with your brand, get more customers to buy more product more often at higher margin. One of those ways, get more customers, requires an advertising media markdown strategy to it. But get existing customers to buy more product more often at higher margin has nothing to do with paid media or markdown strategy. It has to do with the customer experience, the customer engagement, the product offering, the value proposition, the positioning, the purpose, all those types of things. So we're just really bothered. And if there's four ways to make money, why is everybody abusing the first one and neglecting the other three? Because it's the other three that creates such advocates that you don't have to do the first one. Because the best way for you to get a customer isn't for me to tell you about my company. It's for one of my customers to tell you about my company. They're far more persuasive and far more affordable than me trying to convince you how cool I am. So, um, you know, that element of word of mouth, I think there's too many CEOs that sit around hoping that somebody says something nice, as opposed to making it where it's irresistible. I can't help myself. I have to say something nice. And that's why you see brands like Tesla don't spend any money on advertising or Costco, not spending any money on advertising or Lululemon, not spending money on it. And when I say on advertising, of course they do their Google keywords. Of course they'll run a back to school campaign. I'm not saying none, it's not binary, all or nothing. It's a dimmer switch. 
And we're trying to get brands to start doing less and less so they can redeploy that capital into things that matter more and more. I like that. And so to make it a little bit actionable for the for the audience listening today, right? How can the the various brand owners, the, the decision makers in the various digital brands that um, that are in the audience today start moving that dimmer switch, as you said, and making their brand their product a little bit more word of mouthy and and empowering their customers and encouraging their customers to uh, talk about it more. Please don't yeah, just say well, make a fantastic product and, and pause. It's more than that. Come on. No, it's, it, I mean, it, it's not, I mean, of course, I mean, the first, cult, there's eight things. I mean, so as we've studied what we can now call cult brands uh, for the past 10 years, We've tried to decode that genome. What's going on in the DNA of those organizations that's different within the DNA of non-cult-like organizations? And our inspiration was that Jim Collins book, Good to Great, mm. where, I don't know, 20 years ago, he, he simply took the best performing stock companies and tried to assess what's homogeneous within those companies that is heterogeneous without Meaning like the, you have to do two things. Like what do, if, if it's not just cult brands do it, but so does everybody else. And that doesn't count. It's got to be what are cult brands doing that others aren't doing. And a lot of it starts with the job description of the marketing department. I like to say that cult brand marketers have marketing departments. Mediocre brands have markdowning departments. So one is focused and is empowered to enhance the customer experience and to even have an opinion about what product services and value propositions should be created. Most mediocre brands have somebody else in R&D or product development, think of something that they should build. And once complete, they go into their agency or their marketing department and say, hey, help us sell this. But there was no input from that team. And that team, should, nobody should know the customer better than your marketing team, hmm. right? It's why Yeti has become, I think, one of the most pervasive cult-like brands they, they don't really call them marketing teams. They call them community managers. And their job is to spend time at rodeos or on fishing boats or at ski hills or at surf competitions and to go native. Go, go, they go native and figure out what those communities are doing, what they need so they then can come back to the Yeti mothership and say, we need better camping chairs. We need dog bowls. We need tumblers, right? Things that are different than $400 coolers, right? They started to say, we're here to service a specific niche. And unfortunately, most brands don't do that. They're there to create something and then ask the marketer to find somebody that would buy it. And so that's the first part is just who has the voice of the customer and how are you injecting that into the culture of your organization? The second part would be mediocre brands think that their marketing job is to talk well. They spend a lot of money on creative. They hire fancy agencies. They spend a lot of money on media. Cult brands have learned how to shut up and listen well. They create, Lego is such a great example. Lego fired their R&D department. They had all these PhD engineers and they said, you know who knows what we should build next better than anybody? Our fans. So they created a master builder community. There's now over 10,000 people who for no money are perpetually iterating and ideating on what Lego should be doing. So that by the time the new Lego product comes out, they already have 10,000 people who said, I'll take one because they had a voice in creating what that should be. So I don't think that brands do a good enough job listening and responding 
to what consumers are saying. A lot of brands think, oh yeah, we have comment cards. We listen to social media posts. That's, that's crap. I'm talking about real uh, in integration into the product development function. And then, I mean, there's eight. We don't have time to go into all eight of them. Uh, another thing that I would suggest is that mediocre brands find ways to have one-way conversation. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, buy a bunch of media and shout at you, interrupt what you're doing so that you see my digital posts or whatever. Cult brands find ways to get people to congregate. It's been really difficult, obviously, in the past year with COVID. But the secret to Airbnb's success, the secret to Lululemon's success, the secret to the Dallas Cowboys or the LA Lakers' success is how well they create places for fans to get together themselves. So mediocre brands try to get people to transact with them. Cult brands try to get their fans to interact with each other. It's why Harley Davidson has the most successful loyalty program on the earth, the hog owner group. It's because the Harley riders want to get together to ride. I don't need Harley to do anything other than make sure I have a great bike and a kick-ass leather jacket. Harley's job was to create a platform. Nike, same thing. They create communities for runners to run or for swimmers to swim. Uh, that's the playbook of a cult brand leader. I love that. Um, I really do. And, and it's, it, it's so important to, I mean, I mean, what I was thinking about um, briefly when you said that. So at, at Nubru, we have um, what we, what we call the tribe. And basically we, uh, when, when a, when a customer has, has ordered from us multiple times and or spent over a certain amount of money, actually both, um, we give them what's known as a golden ticket and invite them into uh, into our to our community into our group. Now we we could have created a group and we will do create com communities around the 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 problem that Nubru solves. But what we've got here is we've got we're building up and I, I write I wrote about it in my book is we're building up an army of a thousand raving fans. That's what that's what we're doing. And you, and you talked about it there with Lego and the ten thousand. And frequently I get in there Facebook lives, hanging out with the customers, interviews, all of this sort of stuff to really understand uh, what's going on. But frequently we get we get product names, we get new flavor suggestions, we get gripes. Uh, you know, pain points, things to resolve, suggestions in that group, and it, and it, you know, it's for free because we're we're passionate. The, we we refer to ourselves as new brewers, um, so you know we have an identity there, and um, you know I really really enjoy hearing about how our product, which essentially helps anybody with a brain, right, which is everybody, which isn't a lot of help when it when it comes to understanding. I really enjoy hearing about how our product is integrated into the various lives of these of, of these customers and how they consume it on a daily basis and why. What is the pain point and the, and the, and the why behind it? Now, um, in part, I, I, obviously, there's still a number of steps to go in terms of creating more of a culture and more of a, a, a word of mouth train. But if, and this is more for the listeners, if you're not speaking to your customers, and I mean like long-form interviews, voice, telephone, conversation, Zoom, and actually really trying to get to understand the why and have a have a from the, the the front lines kind of feedback about your product you're missing several tricks not just one what's what's your disdain for markdowns i find markdowns it'd be like saying chris how do you feel about bribery <laughs> you know it, it's effective if somebody kidnapped my kid and I needed to get him back, I would consider paying a ransom. Why consider. not? Right. But it's like, it's, it is a, it's the, it's the territory of the lazy marketer. 
who can find no other meaningful way for somebody to transact with your brand, has no other compelling differentiation that is worthy of distinction and notice, and so says, well, at least we can be cheap. I can't be better, but I can be cheaper. And I think that there's the danger with market. Listen, if you if you if your media if your um, uh, merchandising department bought too much inventory, uh, and you need to clear it out, so you need to do an end of season clearance sale, do a markdown sale. I get it, but recognize that's a necessary evil because your merchandising team screwed up, and they should have bought better. And so let's get smarter the next times so that we don't have to do as big of a clearance sale next year. The, the problem with, with um, and the reason why we, we called our book Fix is that we use this metaphor of, of drugs and, and you'll hear many a CMO refer to their marketing strategy as heroin. It's because they, it works. <laughs> you can put a 50% off and people will come. The problem is what do you have to do the next time? It's the slippery slope of the addiction where just like with drugs, eventually you have to take more and more drug just to get the same high that the first time gave you. You know, I, I read a terrifying statistic the other day. Subway has been doing $5 footlongs for as long as I can remember. Um, the National Association of Subway Franchisees is now revolting. And they published an article telling the franchisees stop doing it because not since the first iteration of $5 footlongs have we recouped the expense based on the incremental traffic, which means the first time it worked and the people got so greedy, they have now been doing it year in, year out for a loss, <laughs> expecting that, that you know, we're going to somehow make that up in volume. And the franchisees are finally saying, enough, we're, we're addicted. We're, we're going into, you know, um, cardiac arrest here. We need to get, we need to wean ourselves off of this. So, I just think it's really lazy um, and it's, uh, it should be used surgically and strategically. And yet most of our clients that are broken, um, are at, they, they sell less than 50% of their product at full price, which means that they are on sale more than they're not on sale. And what was 20% off became 30, then 40, then 50. Some of them are at 70% off because they've created a, you know, a bed that they now no longer want to sleep in. Absolutely. And there's there's many ways to engage an audience and and drive sales without doing this this like you said, like a I don't know, a heroin sample um to 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 get your audience hooked on your on your discounts. So what about what about the the strategy of using a sort of quote unquote flash flash sale where it's a discount for a period of time to encourage prospects out of the very human behavior of of just you know sort of procrastinating not taking action what what um alternatives do you suggest to to you know get get the action that you want yeah and again i i think sometimes in our it's either in my inability to communicate appropriately or in the listener's inability to understand nuance everything is not black and white uh, I don't have a problem with an occasional flash sale. I think that some of the most cult-like brands will do super cool pop-up retail events. Uh, they'll do some sort of highly sought after, you know, clearance or markdown. You know, imagine, uh, you know, uh, you think of Apple, clearly one of the most cult-like brands. Like, I wish I could get this phone 40% off. You got to be, you know, something, something really substantial has to happen for Apple to ever go on sale. 
Yeah. So it's really more about the mentality and the reason. And if, if the reason is, or the alternative, frankly, is just be the cheapest all the time. So there's cult brands like Target or uh, Little Caesars Pizza or Southwest Airlines. Like people have high emotional attachment for those brands and they're just always cheap. So you don't have to be premium like Porsche or you know Starbucks or Lulu or whatever, but you do have to be this, you have to be intentional about how pricing is going to be part of your go-to-market strategy. And unfortunately, most brands aren't intentional. It's done out of either bad legacy. Well, we're just always on sale. We we do 36 flyers a year because that's what we've always done. And as new CMOs come in their job is to maintain the status quo, not to disrupt it. And so you just find a whole organizations of people. We've had many dozens of marketing teams have told us we are highly unmotivated. We know all this activity is noise. We know that this is a bad use of spend, but we're just stuck because the CEO or the board or the whatever, some powers that be say, just shut up and do it. And that, that's where we get frustrated. That's where we start using these provocative metaphors like, like, a, you know, you're addicted or you need to go to rehab or you need an intervention. It's because somebody has to call this crazy because it's being talked about in the break room. It's being talked about behind closed doors. Somebody needs to come in and, and, and be that bull in the China shop and just say, stop. And you look at something like, you know, Uber. I don't know if you saw two years ago, Uber, Uber spent $150 million on digital advertising to get writers to install their app. They took $100 million out, two-thirds of their budget, and saw no increase or decrease to writer app installation. So for how long were they wasting $100 million annually under this perceived perception of, well, the media report says, look at all these low CPMs that we're getting. It's crazy. It's insanity. J.P. Morgan Chase went from 400,000 digital ad sites to 5,000. They went off of 395,000 websites and their ad performance improved. <laughs> so that's where we're just like, guys, there's insanity going on and we've got to try to correct it. And so we're not, we're not particularly polite about it. We're trying to grab people by the coat collar and shake some sense into them. I love that. And so where can people learn more about you and cult? Uh, I mean, we, listen, we rant daily on social media on our website, cultideas.com. We've authored the book, as I mentioned, that I hope you'll put in the show notes. Uh, I, my personal favorite is every year we host an event called The Gathering. Uh, I'm not uh, naive enough to not believe that much of what I say is self-serving. If I can convince an organization they're broken, then I hope they will pay my firm to come in and fix them. So once a year, we say, don't take my word for it. It's not Chris on a stage ranting like this. It's the head of Netflix. It's the head of Amazon. It's the head of Budweiser. It's the head of Harley Davidson. So we parade the cult brand leaders out and uh, they speak and then it's all recorded. You can go to cultgathering.com and uh, view the, uh, the past sessions. And so I like it because it's an annual reminder that I'm not crazy. The world's crazy because we've seen what good looks like. I don't think anybody would look at Netflix and say they're not successful. The question is, do you know how they got their success and are you willing to do what they're doing? Because I'm not sure the last time you saw a Netflix commercial on television, but it doesn't happen. Right? Netflix doesn't, isn't addicted to mass media the way that you know, other brands are. Beautiful. So check out cultideas.com, ladies and gents, and also the book Fix, How to Break Your Addiction. We'll try and get that in the show notes as well. 
Chris, at this point in the show, we like to mix it up. We go into the rapid fire question round. I ask the questions quickly and you can answer them at a speed that you choose. Are you up for that? Let's do it. Are you two thumbs up for that? There they are. All right. Question number one. If you ever had to start again, how would you make your money? Uh, I've always said that if I wasn't doing cult, my dream job would be to be a game show host. I would have, uh, I would go try to get on a takeover. Let's make a deal or price is right. What's the most common or biggest mistake leaders make? Um, they confuse leadership with management and they're too busy managing a business as opposed to leading and inspiring people to do something great. Who is a great leader alive or dead and why? You know, I think a leader that that doesn't get as much credit as Howard Schultz of Starbucks. And uh, much like Steve Jobs, it's 10 times the, the spotlight. Um, he built something, he left, what he built started to wither. He was brought back, he restored it again to its greatness. And uh, he, he's a cult brand leader of, uh, of you know, 10x magnitude that more people should be trying to emulate. How do you hire top talent? Uh, um, my biggest conviction is I don't need employees. I need evangelists. So my top talent, you know, their, their craftsmanship is important, but their commitment to our cause. I like to tell people when they leave my company, I don't care if you leave. I'm not naive enough to think you're going to work here for the next 50 years, but just don't ever go back. Don't ever go back to the dark side, you know, stay on this course of fighting the fight of what marketers really should be. I'd be heartbroken if somebody left me and went to just a traditional agency because it would mean that they were never actually bought in. How do you identify a good business partner? Huh. Um, your compliment. Uh, I think too many people prioritize compatibility uh, and really what you need is complementary skill sets and you need to be able to have shared values, you have to go to fight fair, but you don't want another you. You want somebody that's does almost the opposite of you so that your strengths complement each other. What is one of your proudest moments um, it'll be this November being married, uh, my 25th wedding anniversary. Oh. Uh, work is great, but life is all about personal relationships. And, uh, the fact that uh, I've prioritized my marriage makes me happy. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. What, um, what is it? What's 25? Is that gold, silver, paper? Like, I don't know, but I, I probably should find out. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, you've I'm got sure a few months. I, I owe her a nice gift. <laughs> What's one interesting fact about you that not many people would know? Um, uh, that's a good question. I one time tried out for David Letterman's stupid human tricks uh, in college, trying to uh, eat eat cereal out of my uh, roommate's belly. It was disgusting, and we uh, <laughs> we didn't get on. No, that 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 wasn't captivating TV. It actually was, and we got a great letter from them saying that we love we love this. But it was right at the time that David Letterman was moving from NBC to CBS. This is you know. 25 years ago and uh they said it was intellectual property that they were fighting over so um you know try again in two years and by then i matured and realized i did not want to do that on national television what daily routines do you have with a morning or evening that have helped make you successful um you know I, I am a morning person i think my biggest routine is i'm i'm up early um but i i, I toy with different things right now i'm kind of in a yoga and journaling phase uh in the past i went through a, a workout or a uh uh, a sunrise run phase. I've also tried, um, I, I try to spend some time just reading, um, not so much books, but uh, blogs and, and social media followers and stuff like that. So make sure I get my mind right every morning before I uh, open up my phone. Nice. 
What book or books changed your mindset or life? Hmm. Um, the, the single biggest book that, that was the genesis of cult was a book by Douglas Atkins, who's now become a friend of mine, called The Culting of Brands. It was the first time I had ever seen the comparison of true cults, and that could be like real cults, or, or it could be the Krishnas, it could be the Marine Corps, it could be a fraternity, it could be a religion, um, and, and drawing the parallel to those aren't to be feared, those are to be studied because there's something irrational going on there that if those powers were used for good rather than for evil, something amazing could happen. So I read that back in uh, 20, oh, no, 2009 or 2010, and I, that's where it made me realize that's what I want to do with my life is build cults, not build just a you know, shallow customer relationship. What's the most exciting question you spend your time thinking about? You know, lately it's about the the matrimony between HR and marketing. Uh, I, I, I the more we learn about cult brands, the more we realize. So one of the eight cult brand principles is called build from the inside out. And there's always been this weird correlation between businesses that like trades uh, recognizes great places to work and their external uh, advocacy and affinity. So we 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 keep trying to uncover more and more. And it really boils down to marketing, spending more time on internal engagement issues and having becoming bedfellows with their HR peers. And in mediocre companies, they're, they're almost adversarial and HR becomes more like the legal department and they're about risk mitigation and marketing is only focused on external audiences. Uh, but within cult brands, marketing spends a lot of time rallying the troops and thinking about who should be hired and organizing policies and culture, you know, Zappos and Chobani and Netflix come to mind, Google or Facebook, like these really interesting empowered cultures that manifest in external benefits. What advice would you give your younger self? Um, enjoy your hair while it lasts. <laughs> your listeners can't see this, but I'm an ugly bald man and I wish I wasn't. I might have to adopt that particular piece of advice myself, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you know, I wear a hat for these things. What was your biggest challenge starting in business and how did you overcome it? Um, you know, I heard once this great quote that says, fear has killed more dreams than failure ever has. And uh, I, I have insecurities. I, I, I sometimes questioned in the early days if I had the intestinal fortitude for entrepreneurship because the ambiguity is almost overwhelming. Uh, like when I worked at corporations like Home Depot or John Deere, I never went to bed at night thinking I did something today that's going to bankrupt the company. You know, I was a cog in a big machine and there was safety and security in that versus when you're an entrepreneur, you're making big bet the farm kind of decisions on the regular. And ideally, if you're in hyper growth mode, that regular might be weekly or daily, right? They shouldn't just be once a year, you make a scary decision. So uh, yeah, I think the idea that I, I have to overcome my own fear, I have to surround myself with podcasts and books and people in the gathering where I can get my own battery recharge and get my own boost of courage so that I can go out and, and be the change agent that I hope to be. What unusual or underrated food or drink should more people try out? You know, I think the most unusual underrated thing I do is I, I, I don't drink, uh, smoke or do drugs. So I, I would actually subscribe to more people should be aware of the adverse effects of alcohol, particularly coming out of this pandemic. I think we've actually increased the number in the functioning alcoholics. And so 
people starting to reevaluate the substances that they're dependent upon. It could be alcohol, it could be caffeine, it could be sugar. Um, I think that uh, you're going to have a healthier life. I'll have, I certainly feel like I've had a better life by, uh, by trying to be more conscious about what the effects of these external stimulants do to me. Final question. What makes you happiest? Well, I mean, most of it would be personal stuff. You know, like I said, my, uh, a quote that has governed my career for the past 25 years is no amount of success will compensate for failure in the home. So while I love professional accolades, while I'm happy my business is growing, uh, I'm probably happiest professionally in a boardroom convincing C-suites that there's a better way. But, you know, watching my kids score a touchdown at a football game or uh, seeing my wife, you know, uh, happy when I when I come home and we enjoy a nice meal. It's uh, it's those are the moments that matter most. That will be my legacy. Nobody's going to remember me 100 years from now, but hopefully my grandkids uh, well, so uh, happiness is to be found in the home, I think. Amazing. What a fantastic answer to cap off an amazing answer round. So at this point, I'd like to ask you, do you have any asks or requests of the audience listening today? Yeah, I, I would hope that my um, that my provocative, you know, tone and examples would just cause people to ponder a bit, ask some questions that maybe you're not asking enough. Maybe you're just stuck in some routine. You know, that, that form of that metaphor of addiction kind of just speaks to you're doing it subconsciously. And what we're trying to do is to make more conscious decisions. And so uh, everybody's got to choose how they're going to compete. I just hope that you'll consider maybe there's another way. Maybe there's an alternative. And uh, let's fully exhaust those potential alternatives before we double down on our current state. Amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time uh, with us today. Thank you for, for sharing your controversial views, but actually very, very logical views when you when you break them down. Thank you for challenging us to 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 look deeper into some of the, the decisions that aren't really decisions. It's just habits. It's business habits. It's tradition yeah. uh, more than anything else. And and to shake things up a little bit and uh yeah thank you man it's been a tremendously interesting and refreshing uh view into marketing and there's so many and we've we've mentioned so many on this show cult brands out there and um i think one of the the, the big takeaways um as you pointed out uh if the if one of the most valuable companies in the world apple never discounts their stuff and even on black friday are only giving away gift cards in, uh, to incentivize you to, to purchase and yet they're one of the most valuable companies in the world if that's not enough to to relook at uh, your your marking down strategy uh, nothing is so thank you for uh, you know holding up a mirror I think to yeah. to the audience a little bit today and um, and challenging them to do things differently it was my absolute pleasure I, I appreciate the time Hey there, you incredibly good-looking human. Thanks so much for listening. If you had a good time today and would like more good times in the future, please hit that subscribe button and leave a heartwarming review. I read them all and it will go a long way to help others out there benefit from all the teachings of this show. And if you want to get in touch or otherwise learn more about me, head to martincook.co.uk or smarterdestiny.com. I really appreciate you. You're an incredible human. Until next time, keep crushing.